Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-9, through 9. let's stand for the reading of our sermon text. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have brought us here to receive it. Father, we pray that every one of our thoughts and meditations Upon that word would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So chapter 2, we're in chapter 3, chapter 2 of the Apostle Peter's second letter, which we're in, um, was written to warn the churches about false teachers. That was the uh, main topic of chapter 2. Those who depart from the gospel and serve their lusts and serve their greed. That those false teachers serve themselves is very dangerous to the sheep, obviously. But their actual teaching, right, They serve themselves, but then there's their actual teaching. Their actual teaching, which perverts the gospel and departs from the word, is poison to the flock. It is not nourishing. It is actually destructive. It is poisonous. In the passage we're looking at today, we learn about one of the specific teachings that the false teachers were spreading. Very simply put, The false teachers scoffed at Jesus' words that he was going to return. They scoffed at that. 
We will be therefore thinking about the second advent, that second coming of Jesus Christ, his return at the end of the age uh, to judge the living and the dead. The first two verses of chapter 3 remind us of the apostle's purpose in writing the letter. Just like his first letter, this letter was uh, written so that believers would remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. In other words, he wants them to learn from what is written. He wants them to learn from what is written in the word, right? And to avoid falling for the the manipulative words of false teachers who make stuff up as they go along and don't care whether it can be proven from the written word, right? It goes beyond what's written in the word. It is, it is made up. Teachers of the word are to stick to the word, right? Not to, you know, import their own ideas from elsewhere, right? That's a very simple simple statement, one that you should uh, vehemently hold to, though, right? If it can't be proven from Scripture, it should not be taught, right? It should not be taught from the pulpit. But notice the two sources of the word that Peter mentions, the holy prophets, and then at the end of verse 2, the apostles, right? You remember what the apostle Peter has already written about the work of the prophets. In chapter 1 of this letter, He wrote, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Right? That, dear brothers and sisters, is the difference between the work of the prophets and the work of false prophets. False prophets are not carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? False prophets most assuredly make prophecies that are acts of the human will and are not moved by that Holy Spirit, and certainly do not speak from God. They don't do that. There's a big difference between a prophet and a false prophet. False prophets have no calling from God. They have no calling from God to speak His Word. God must call His prophets and His apostles, and it's important to note, uh, there are no more prophets and apostles. There are no more prophets and apostles today, right? The canon is closed. God has said what he intends to say by his prophets and by his apostles. What is written, what we have now, is what is necessary for us to know about our Savior and to be saved. The very, that, that very fact is wonderful. It's all here. We've got it. We've got it in its finished form. Right? And what does it teach us? It tells us, you know, what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's our catechism answer for the day, right? That's what it teaches us. What we are to believe about God, who He is, what He does, and then what He asks us to do, what duty He requires of us to live by faith in His Son. It's important to point out that this text puts those Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles on the same level, okay? Those who wrote prophecies about Jesus, about Jesus' coming, and those who met with Jesus and then preached the good news of His coming, of His first advent, 
uh, put to the page inspired words as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The false prophets, right? those who, who are a law unto themselves, have no calling, they have no respect for God's revealed will, and so they again just make stuff up. They make stuff up. One of the most insidious works of the false prophets, though, is this. It is to make believers doubt what God has written. To doubt what God has written in and by His prophets and His apostles who have written over the course of millennia one perfectly cogent and perfectly, perfectly bound together Bible, right? false prophets like to get God's people to doubt that. They don't even need to say anything new. They just like to plant a seed of doubt in people's minds. That's what false teachers do, right? Just as their father, the devil, did with Eve in the garden. Did God really say, you know? Not God was wrong, it's just did God really say? They say things like, can you, really, can you really trust your Bible? I mean, can, can you really trust? Doesn't it seem unfair that Scripture, or doesn't it seem unkind, or, or doesn't it seem irregular that Scripture is, is heteronormative? Doesn't it seem, eh, you know? You know, isn't, isn't God mean? Isn't he sort of a divine tyrant? You know, if, if hell's real, isn't, you know? And so they just ask questions. False teachers ask questions. But they don't, they don't have, you know, they, they don't have, they don't want to have answers to. They're just doing it to upset you when you don't have answers founded and found in the Word of God. The Apostle Peter is exhorting his sheep not to get sucked in by the scoffing words of those who reject what is written in his word. You must not get sucked in by people who make things up. You must not. You, all of you, must not get sucked in that way. Where do we go? We go to the word. We go to the word to find truth, to find what is truth. We live our lives by what is written there, not by the vain imaginations of people who have not been called by God to convey his will to man. If you do not sink yourself, therefore, into the scriptures, if you don't sink yourselves into divine revelation, you will be led astray by a thousand scoffing voices. There's one voice of God. It's written. One voice, but there are a thousand voices of scoffers who will lead you astray. Verse 3 then gets into the specifics. He writes, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mockings, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. There it is. 
right? The false teachers are afflicting the believers with these kinds of taunting words, if I could paraphrase. You apostles have been saying that Jesus is going to return, but he hasn't. And in fact, everything just continues on just like it always has, right? Everything, even our relatives who professed faith, they died. They died before Jesus came back. One of them. This goes on even since the beginning of everything, right? This is the sort of say la vie or, or what will be will be sort of attitude. And it's, it's an astonishingly, astonishingly depressing mindset, isn't it? Things will always continue on as they always have. Ugh. If that doesn't depress you, you, you don't know you're a sinner. Or you, don't, you have this pie-in-the-sky idea that life is beautiful. Right? Eternal life is beautiful. Right? Life now is thorns and thistles and pain and suffering. Things will always continue on as they have. It's, it's the book of Ecclesiastes without faith, right? Things will just keep going on and on and on and on and on. But there's no faith there. False teachers, you see, want all, all the goodies that come along with religion, but they do not want to bow their knees to God himself. They think that their perceptions our reality, that, dear brothers and sisters, seems obvious, or it stems, right, obviously from a, a lack of faith. But even, even beyond that, it's clearly a lack of faith, but it's also just a lack of imagination. You know? I mean, that's a lesser argument by far, right? That, that to, 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 to be a... Um, you know, to, to be a philosopher, to be a, a, an existentialist just lacks imagination, right? But, but that the world would have a God who made everything, who, who sent his son to die and he raises them from the dead, it's a beautiful vision, right? It's beautiful. It's beautiful and we know it in our bones that it's true, because that's what every story ever written is about, right? We just know it. We feel it. But nonetheless, these things are only perceived by faith, by faith. And so this mindset that everything will be as it is and it, it, thing, life is just going to keep going on is, is a life devoid of faith. They can look on creation, which is shouting about God's glory and power. And they can suppress that truth and unrighteousness. Now notice that Peter says that mockers will say these sorts of things in the last days. In the last days. He wants the believers to be prepared for the words of mockers and scoffers. But what are these last days that he's talking about? Is, is Peter talking about some time period just before Jesus' actual physical return, or, or is it some other time? Well, if you grew up in a typical American dispensational church, 
you were undoubtedly taught that the last days were those days that immediately precede the return of Jesus Christ. At the end of the, I guess the end of the ages, it gets confusing. And then, and then what your pastor would say is, and we are in the last days. Right? I mean, because look at what's going on in the world. Israel has been reconstituted as a nation. Right? Um, wars and conspiracies and this and that and, and Rome and seven hills. and We are clearly and finally in the last days. That most definitively is not what is meant by last days. Okay? That is not what is meant by last days. That's wrong and that has led to many manipulations of Scripture, especially in the last 80 to 100 years. That view has been very popular. By last days, the apostles have as a frame of reference, think of this, all of the Old Testament prophecies about the first coming of Christ. Right? All those Old Testament prophecies about Jesus coming. And then Jesus came. All those prophecies, you know, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, are fulfilled and they make up the first days. Right? Everything that came prior to that. Much has been fulfilled, all has been fulfilled, except for Jesus' second coming, right? So we are now in the last days, the last days before Christ's eternal reign over his consummated kingdom at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But then the question is this, when did those last days begin? Well, some say at the resurrection, some say at the ascension, some say on the day of Pentecost, right? When, when the Spirit was poured out upon his church. I think each of those is a good candidate, right? So the time between Jesus, let's take his resurrection and the return of Jesus at his second advent are the last days, okay? We and the Christian church have always lived in the last days, okay? Peter was living in the last days. The Apostle Paul was living in the last days. Charlemagne was living in the last days, right? Uh, Pope Leo IX was living in the last days, and we too are living in the last days. And, and um, the last days have been running now for nearly 2,000 years. And this is very clear in what the author of the book of Hebrews says. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. You see what the writer of Hebrews is saying there? The prophets spoke, but in the last days, now that Jesus came in the flesh, in these last days, he speaks through his son. And the Apostle Peter addresses his own day with these words in his first letter. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So let's get it out of our heads that the last days are some sort of spooky chaotic time just weeks before Christ's advent, 
Well, there are predictions of things that will happen before Christ's second advent. Those things are in Scripture. But they are not the sort of things that you might have read in Timothy LaHaye's Left Behind. Right? The last days are all the days that precede Christ's return since the day he was taken up into the sky just as he will return. So we live in the middle of fulfillments that are still being worked out, all of which are the last days. Now consider this. We know that between Jesus' resurrection and now there have been nearly 2,000 years of history without Christ's return. 2,000 years of history. We have a perspective that the Apostle Peter and those believers that he was writing to couldn't have. We know that Christ's return, when Peter wrote this, was more than 2,000 years off in the future. But the church during the Apostles' time didn't know that and could not know that because God has not revealed the specific time. But, and this is important, they were told to focus their hopes on Christ's return. They were told to focus their hopes on Christ's return. Paul, in the book of 2 Thessalonians, pushes the churches to the same contemplation. Paul writes to the persecuted Christians of the first century that God would give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. For all those first century believers knew that return could have been moments away. And Scripture gave them reason to believe that, right? Is there any encouragement in thinking that the next big thing in God's redemptive plan is Christ's return? Is there any encouragement in that? Is there any encouragement in that to you? That the King will come? That the King will come and make all things new? There may be some here who think that the next big thing is not the return of Christ, right? There may be some here who think that the next big thing is the Christianizing of the world, okay? Um, That would be the post-millennial view. And yet, it honestly seems to me that the weight of Scripture falls on the former and not the latter. It seems to me that the message of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament especially calls for Christians to fix their hope on Christ's return rather than on some golden age in the church. Now, having said that, there are passages such as Habakkuk 2.14, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 65, 17-25, which appear to put forth a radical conversion of the nations of the world before Christ's return. Right? There are also many passages, on the other hand, like what we're dealing with today, that encourage God's people to look for relief from persecution in Christ's, Christ's actual return, not in a slow burn of conversions leading to the Christianizing of the world. The New Testament scriptures seem to be strangely silent on a golden age for the church. The New Testament scriptures seem to be strangely silent on that topic. But one would suspect that the Holy Spirit would inspire certain and clear words about that. That truth, that the weight of the New Testament Scriptures is on Christ's second coming at the end of the age, is especially pronounced 
if one resists over-applying the events of A.D. 70, the destruction of the temple, to most any passage in the New Testament that speaks of Christ's return. Okay, that's, that is what post-millennialists and uh, many amillennialists do, is they put so much weight on, on what happened in A.D. 70 that every single verse in the New Testament becomes a f- fulfilled in A.D. 70. Now, that's a convenient little escape hatch for some difficult, for some difficult passages, right? And um, the post-millennialists have that escape hatch. Of course, uh, Christianizing of the world could happen. I don't know. I don't know. It could happen, and in God's power, it could happen quickly, right? Um, And we'll continue to argue about what the next big event in redemptive history really is, but I, I say especially when it comes to discussions of the future, we have to be humble, we have to continue to dig through Scripture for answers and go back and forth on on these two views that I think are legitimate. And what I want to emphasize here this morning is that the Christians of the first century did not have the benefit of knowing that Christ's return was at least 2,000 years in the future. Just think about that for a moment. That very fact informs the post-millennial position, right? It informs it. It allows some post-millennialists to have an explanation for what they perceive to be as a delay in Jesus' return. The case could be made, though, that 2,000 years of church history have not led to a prospering of Christianity on the earth. That case can be made. Again, but that's arguable even still, at the very least. But Jesus did posit the question, when he was speaking about his own return, would he find faith on the earth? Unless, of course, that's eighty seventy. Right? AD 70 is the escape hatch for the post-millennialist. AD 70 is important. Jesus predicted AD 70. Jesus taught about AD 70. You have to, you can't read the Olivet Discourse and get out of it with anything but AD 70. I think that's true. But everywhere else, or many other places, I would say um, that is, that can be over-applied. Um, So there's, again, this is the difficulty we get into when we get a passage on the last days or on the end times or on Jesus' return. There's so much baggage that's brought into it culturally and in our churches, but then there's so much complexity in the topic that I just feel, I feel undone. Like, I can't get ahead of this. I can't wrap my head around it. I can't give you a comprehensive vision of it. I mean, there are pastors that will do 280-hour uh, you know, lectures on the book of Revelation and tie it up perfectly. That's not your pastor. I mean, not yet. Um, there's so much wrapped up in this. I, I hope I'm making some sense, but back to Second Peter. The scoffers and false teachers doubted that Jesus would return at all. They asked, where is his appearing? They had heard what the apostles taught about Christ coming again, and it hadn't happened. 
Some had even died, and Christ hadn't been there to save them. That gave the scoffers reason to mock their foolish hope. Things have always been what they've been. Jesus didn't come. Just move on. To that, Peter gives them an answer, verse 5. He says, For when they, the scoffers, maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now, how is that an answer? How in the world is that an answer? The scoffers are saying that creation has just gone on since the time of creation. All continues on the same way. But Peter stops them short and says, no, it hasn't. It has not. God has interceded in cataclysmic ways in the world. God destroyed the world when he flooded the earth, Genesis 6 and 7. The scoffers are wrong. God intercedes in his world, and aside from doing so every day, he does so in apocalyptic ways at times. And it was by his word that these things occurred. It, it was by his word that all was created. And it was by his word that the world was destroyed. The scoffers' arguments are wrong in light of God's revealed word. God rules over the course of history. And he has done so in obvious ways. Then... Peter writes, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In other words, there is a fire of judgment coming. There is a day coming that will make the floods of Noah's days seem like small potatoes. That day will be the day when Jesus returns with the sword coming forth from his mouth by which he will recreate the entire world and her nations. And it will be on that same day when every man, both living and dead, will be judged according to his works. That will be a day. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be the, among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning. There will no longer be any crying or pain. 
the first things have passed away. The Apostle Peter is encouraging his persecuted children, his persecuted sheep, with that coming reality. Note that he is not holding forth a golden era. No, rather he is pointing toward the last day. The sudden conclusion to the last days of which we are in the midst. The consummation of the ages uh, in the new heaven and new earth, which will be, as it says here, born out of fire. Does this really mean that the earth and heaven will actually burn and be destroyed into nothing? I don't think so. It means the judgment of God will so recreate all things that it will have the same effect as if fire had, had changed it, right? Which burns the old but gives seed beds for newness, just like in a forest fire. Every forest fire is like the judgment of God. It removes the old and already dead and gives way to new life. The effects of Christ's coming will be wonderfully devastating to the order or disorder of this world. All will be made new. The scoffers will have gotten it all wrong. God rules over his world and his judgment is waiting for those especially who pervert his word, denying it and causing others to doubt it. They have a view of the world that is is, is as naturalistic as any pagan view ever was. They think God is impotent. Things just go on as they go on. They have no fear that one day they will stand before God Almighty being judged. And so the Apostle Peter right here is putting these false teachers on notice. Get ready for that day. Meanwhile, the faithful... Those believers who are afflicted by the continuous message of these scoffers are encouraged to look to Jesus' return. And should they have to wait, should they have to wait, Peter teaches them and now us this. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Pay attention, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What an answer to those scoffers who were saying that Jesus was wrong and that, and, and that all those predictions about his return were off the mark. Peter is echoing Moses here in Psalm 90. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Even at our vantage point, 2,000 years after the Apostle Peter was inspired to write these words, we're only two days into the last days, <laughs> so to speak. Calvin says, the Apostle reminds the believers that when the coming of Christ is the subject, they were to raise upwards their eyes, for by so doing they would not limit by their unreasonable wishes the time appointed by the Lord. For waiting seems very long on this account because we have our eyes fixed on the shortness of the present life. We also increase weariness by computing days, hours, and minutes. But when the eternity of God's kingdom comes to our mind, when we contemplate God's eternity and the eternity of his kingdom, many ages vanish away like so many moments. 
just like moments. The apostle does not know when the end will come, but he tells us to consider these things from God's perspective. God sees all of history as one singular point. He stands outside of time and sees it as a singular object. And so from our perspective, it's very hard to wait. How many generations are going to come and go before Jesus Christ appears on the clouds? How many nations will rise and fall before Jesus destroys them with a rod of iron? So it may seem like a long time for us, but God, for God, it's no trouble. It's not long. And not only is it not long, it actually has a purpose. What purpose is that? It's stated in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise to return, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's why God has waited 2,000 years. He may wait 2,000 more for this reason. For this reason right here. Jesus Christ has not returned because he is patient toward man. He, as our text says, does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And we know from the testimony of Scripture that God in his nature is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. It is God's nature to be merciful. And the reason the father delays to send his son is so that he might invite all mankind, all mankind to repentance. Now, you know, at this point, let's not get ahead of ourselves and turn this into a lecture on God's sovereignty over salvation and how this verse fits in with that verse. I'm not going to do that. Here's what I want you to take away from this verse. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have not confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, well then it is only because of the patience of God that you have not faced your final judgment. That's the only reason. He's been patient. Because You know this, it is appointed unto men once to die, then judgment. The reason you still have time to believe in Christ is nothing other than the patience of God. He's being patient with you. Think about this, God is delaying the destruction of the world. God is delaying the destruction of the world and that great lineup of the sheep and the goats and casting into fire so that you may have time to repent. He's delaying the destruction of the world so that you might have time to repent. And so the question is this, knowing what is coming and that it is God's patience that holds it back, will you believe in his son and embrace him as your hiding place? Will you make the most of today and come to Him, right? Will you take advantage, so to speak, of God's patience and become a disciple of His Son? Just a few verses forward, Peter writes, Beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. 
will you think on the amazing kindness God has shown you and that you still have the opportunity to respond in repentance to the message of the gospel? Will you delay? You ought not. You should not delay because here is something that is also true. A day is as a thousand years to the Lord. In other words, one day has a a trillion complexities and God can plumb the depth perfectly of all of them. If he can create the cosmos with a word in a day, well then he can wade through and be satisfied with the cosmic weight of one day in his universe. right? And so in this sense, it has been 2,000 years of thousand-year days that God has been patient with you. 2,000 years of 1,000-year days. Calculate the time. It's stupendously long. Today, in other words, is the day when you should be found in Jesus Christ. God is patient, but He has appointed a day when you will die, and upon your death you will stand before the Almighty God, and will you be clothed in an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, or will you stand there mumbling under your breath about God's hatred for you? Did you really say? No, He has been patient. He's been patient. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God is so kind to you to give you this opportunity to come to him. Take it. 